section fourteen of the art of letters this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the art of letters by robert lind the office of the poets there is at least there seems to be more kent talked about poetry just now than at any previous time tartuffe is to-day not a priest but a poet or a critic or perhaps tartuffe is too lively a prototype for the curates of poetry who swarm in the world's capitals at the present hour there is a tendency in the followers of every art or craft to impose it on the world as a mystery of which the vulgar can know nothing in medicine as in bricklaying there is a powerful trade union into which the members can retire as into a sanctuary of the initiate in the same way the theologians took possession of the temple of religion and refused admittance to laymen except as a meek and awe-struck audience this largely resulted from the pharisaic instinct that assumes superiority over other men pharisaism is simply an imperialism of the spirit joyless and domineering religion is a communion of immortal souls pharisaism is a denial of this and an attempt to set up an oligarchy of superior persons all the great religious reformations have been rebellions on the part of the immortal souls against the superior persons religion the reformers have proclaimed is the common possession of mankind christ came into the world not to afford a career to theological pedants but that the mass of mankind might have life and might have it more abundantly poetry is in constant danger of suffering the same fate as religion in the great ages of poetry poetry was what is called a popular subject the greatest poets both of greece and of england took their genius to that extremely popular institution the theatre they wrote not for pedants or any exclusive circle but for mankind they were we have reason to believe under no illusions as to the imperfections of mankind but it was the best audience they could get and represented more or less the same kind of world that they found in their own bosoms it is a difficult thing to prove that the ordinary man can appreciate poetry just as it is a difficult thing to prove that the ordinary man has an immortal soul but the great poets like the great saints gave him the benefit of the doubt if they had not we should not have had the greek drama or shakespeare that they were right seems probable in view of the excellence of the poems and songs that survive among a peasantry that has not been de-educated in the schools if the arts were not a natural inheritance of simple people neither the irish love-songs collected by dr douglas hyde nor the irish music edited by moore could have survived i do not mean to suggest that any art can be kept alive without the aid of such specialists as the poet the singer and the musician 
but neither can it be kept healthily alive without the popular audience tolstoy's use of the unspoiled peasant as the test of art may lead to absurdities if carried too far but at least it is an error in the right direction it is an affirmation of the fact that every man is potentially an artist just as christianity is an affirmation of the fact that every man is potentially a saint it is also an affirmation of the fact that art like religion makes its appeal to feelings which are shared by the mass of men rather than the feelings which are the exclusive possession of the few where tolstoy made his chief mistake was in failing to see that the artistic sense like the religious sense is something that so far from being born perfect even in the unspoiled peasant passes through stage after stage of labor and experience on the way to perfection every man is an artist in the seed he is not an artist in the flower he may pass all his life without ever coming to flower the great artist however appeals to a universal potentiality of beauty tolstoy's most astounding paradox came to nothing more than this that art exists not for the hundreds of people who are artists in name but for the millions of people who are artists in embryo at the same time there is no use in being too confident that the average man will ever be a poet even in the sense of being a reader of poetry all that one can ask is that the doors of literature shall be thrown open to him as the doors of religion are in spite of the fact that he is not a perfect saint the histories of literature and religion it seems likely both go back to a time in which men expressed their most rapturous emotions in dances in time the inarticulate shouts of the dancers scottish dancers still utter those shouts do they not gave place to rhythmic words it may have been the genius of a single dancer that first broke into speech but his genius consisted not so much in his separateness from the others as in his power to express what all the others felt he was the prophet of a rapture that was theirs as much as his own men learned to speak rhythmically however not merely in order to liberate their deepest emotions but in order to remember things poetry has a double origin in joy and utility the thirty days hath september rhyme of the english child suggests the way in which men have turned to verse in prehistoric times as a preservative of facts of proverbial wisdom of legend and narrative sir henry newbolt i gather from his new study of english poetry would deny the name of poetry to all verse that is not descended from the choric dance in my opinion it is better to recognize the two lines as of the father and the mother in the pedigree of poetry we find abundant traces of them not only in hesiod and virgil but in homer and chaucer the utility of form and the joy of form have in all these poets become inextricably united the objection to most of the free verse that is being written to-day is that in form it is neither delightful nor memorable 
the truth is the memorableness of the writings of a man of genius becomes a part of their delight if pope is a delightful writer it is not merely because he expressed interesting opinions it is because he threw most of the energies of his being into the task of making them memorable and gave them a heightened vitality by giving them rhymes his satires and the rape of the lock are no doubt better poetry than the essay on man because he poured into them a still more vivid energy but i doubt if there is any reasonable definition of poetry which would exclude even pope the essayist from the circle of the poets he was a puny poet it may be but poets were always as they are to-day of all shapes and sizes unfortunately poetry like religion is a word that we are almost bound to use in several senses sometimes we speak of poetry in contradistinction to prose sometimes in contradistinction to bad poetry similarly religion would in one sense include the abode of love as opposed to rationalism and in another sense would exclude the abode of love as opposed to the religion of st james in a common-sense classification it seems to me poetry includes every kind of literature written in verse or in rhymes akin to verse sir thomas brown may have been more poetic than erasmus darwin but in his best work he did not write poetry erasmus darwin may have been more prosaic than sir thomas brown but in his most famous work he did not write prose sir henry newbolt will not permit a classification of this kind for him poetry is an expression of intuitions an emotional transfiguration of life while prose is the expression of a scientific fact or a judgment i doubt if this division is defensible everything that is literature is in a sense poetry as opposed to science but both prose and poetry contain a great deal of work that is preponderantly the result of observation and judgment as well as a great deal that is preponderantly imaginative poetry is a house of many mansions it includes fine poetry and foolish poetry noble poetry and base poetry the chief duty of criticism is the praise the infectious praise of the greatest poetry the critic has the right to demand not only a transfiguration of life but a noble transfiguration of life swinburne transfigures life in anectoria no less than shakespeare transfigures it in king lear but swinburne's is an ignoble shakespeare's a noble transfiguration poetry may be divine or devilish just as religion may be literary criticism is so timid of being accused of puritanism that it is chary of admitting that there may be a heaven and a hell of poetic genius as well as of religious genius the moralists go too far on the other side and are tempted to judge literature by its morality rather than by its genius it seems more reasonable to conclude that it is possible to have a poet of genius who is nevertheless a false poet just as it is possible to have a prophet of genius who is nevertheless a false prophet the lover of literature will be interested in them all 
but he will not finally be deceived into blindness to the fact that the greatest poets are spiritually and morally as well as aesthetically great if shakespeare is infinitely the greatest of the elizabethans it is not merely because he is imaginatively the greatest it is also because he had a soul incomparably noble and generous sir henry newbolt deals in an interesting way with this ennoblement of life that is the mark of great poetry he does not demand of poetry an orthodox code of morals but he does contend that great poetry marches along the path that leads to abundance of life and not to a feeble and degenerate egotism the greatest value of his book however lies in the fact that he treats poetry as a natural human activity and that he sees that poetry must be able to meet the challenge to its right to exist the extreme moralist would deny that it had a right to exist unless it could be proved to make men more moral the hedonist is content if it only gives him pleasure the greatest poets however do not accept the point of view either of the extreme moralist or of the hedonist poetry exists for the purpose of delivering us neither to good conduct nor to pleasure it exists for the purpose of releasing the human spirit to sing like a lark above this scene of wonder beauty and terror it is consonant both with the world of good conduct and the world of pleasure but its song is a voice and an enrichment of the earth uttered on wings halfway between earth and heaven sir henry newbolt suggests that the reason why hymns almost fail as poetry is that the writers of hymns turn their eyes away so resolutely from the earth we know to the world that is only a formula poetry in his view is a transfiguration of life heightened by the home-sickness of the spirit from a perfect world but it must always use the life we live as the material of its joyous vision it is born of our double attachment to earth and to paradise there is no formula for absolute beauty but the poet can praise the echo and reflection of it in the songs of the birds and the colors of the flowers it is open to question whether there is a fountain filled with blood expresses the homesickness of the spirit as yearningly as and now my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils there are many details on which one would like to join issue with sir henry newbold but his main contentions are so suggestive his sympathies so catholic and generous that it seems hardly worth while arguing with him about questions of scansion or of the relation of blake to contemporary politics or of the evil of anthologies his book is the reply of a capable and honest man of letters to the challenge uttered to poets by keats in the fall of hyperion where moneta demands what benefits canst thou or all thy tribe to the great world and declares none can usurp this height but those to whom the miseries of the world are misery and will not let them rest sir henry newbolt 
like sir sidney colvin no doubt would hold that here keats dismisses too slightingly his own best work but how noble is keats's dissatisfaction with himself it is such noble dissatisfaction as this that distinguishes the great poets from the amateurs poetry and religion the impulse is very much the same the rest is but a parlor game end of section fourteen